Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. I appreciate how John's gospel begins with an accusation and a complaint. Mary, heartsick because of her brother Lazarus's death, crumples in front of Jesus. The Jesus who'd been so slack in getting there. Jesus, if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here, my brother, he wouldn't be dead now. And the thing about this accusation was it was right. Some of our accusations against God aren't fair. Some of them are misguided. And some of them are right. Because we didn't read this part of John's gospel, but if you were to step back a few verses, you'd find out that when Jesus received word that Lazarus was sick, the scripture makes us clear that this is his friend. But Jesus doesn't do what you expect a friend to do. Doesn't our definition of friendship say you drop everything immediately and rush to the aid? Doesn't James even say something about action? I'm glad that the Bible doesn't squelch the hard questions. Whenever they came and said, your friend Lazarus is dead, the scripture says well, Jesus waited two days. He didn't delay hours. He didn't delay a day. He delayed two days. I'm so thankful that the scripture doesn't rush past this. As one who's uh, sometimes given to doubt, I'm glad that God in scripture actually raises these questions for us. There isn't any doubt about God. There isn't any accusation against God that we've ever felt that we can't find in the Bible. If you need to learn how to doubt, you don't really have to go much farther than our own scriptures. They teach us how to protest against God. And isn't it true for most of us that it's exactly these kinds of questions, wherever the sorrows or the disappointments of our life meet God's inaction, isn't this where our most disturbing questions about God reveal themselves? I pray and pray and pray, and so far as I can tell, nothing happens. I want so much to feel God, but I don't. Where was God when I was abused? Where was God when that Syrian child was strewn lifeless on that beach? Mary's complaint, though, from the very beginning, before we even know quite what to do with it, does at least reveal for us the fundamental truth of this gospel reading. And I would say one, it seems, of the most fundamental truths of the Bible. If Lazarus is going to be healed, if Mary's sorrow is ever going to have any good end, then Jesus is going to have to do it. 
It's disturbing to me when I process my life, how much of my life I live as a Christian, as a pastor. As if God really is rather unnecessary. I wonder how much of our life together as a church, a church have you, is lived in actuality as if God is actually not all that necessary. Jesus told Mary and the mourners to take him to the cave where Lazarus was buried. And Jesus told them to move away the stone, but Mary's sister Martha, who's always the good practical thinker, protested, "Uh, Jesus, (laughs) you've already messed up once. You don't want to do this. Lazarus has been dead for four days now. There's a stench in that cave. I once read where there was at least a minority rabbinic tradition at some point in Jewish history that taught that resurrection was possible, remotely possible, but only after three days. Once you'd hit the fourth day, it was absolutely impossible. I've always wondered if there were any who were gathered there hearing Martha's words that might have carried some of that tradition with them and thought, four days, (laughs) this is done. Whenever Jesus waited to return to Bethany, he told the disciples that this waiting actually was necessary so that God's glory could be revealed. In other words, Jesus' seemingly insensitive delay was for the fullness of God to shine free. Now, we have to wrestle with this because this does sound like maniacal egotism. If it weren't for the one claim of Scripture that for God to be God and for there to be no other God, for God to be the revealed who is the one who is our very life, who holds the world and our lives in his hands, for God to be God is actually what we and the whole world most desperately need. We are creatures of God, and we are sustained by the Spirit of God, and we will be welcomed and healed and restored by the action of God through Jesus Christ. If God is not God for us, then we're finished. But the time had passed for Lazarus, and so far as Mary and Martha and all of Lazarus's friends knew, time was up. Story ended. Lazarus's possibilities were done, at least for now. But God does not live constrained within our time. We exist within God's time. Pope Benedict once said, God is the only one who has a future. God is the only one who has a future. And this could be immensely disturbing because I'm not God and you're not God, but the good news is that the Apostle Paul tells us that we are all wrapped up in God. Our life, Paul says, is hid in God. But whatever future that we have, it's possible because God holds us within God's self. 
God welcomes us into himself. Now, this is hospitality. God welcoming you and me and the world, the entirety of creation, into God's own being. True hospitality commences with God, and the rest of us, we're just trying to catch up. Did you hear Psalm 24:1 this morning? The earth is the Lord's. The earth. The ground on which we walk, the trees, the mountains, the oceans, the things that we mar and ruin. The earth is the Lord's, and everything and everyone, every creature that dwells in it. God's kind of hospitality is not merely welcoming us, but actually insisting that we belong. God insists in the very best sense that God possesses us. God has claimed you and holds you and pulls you to himself and vows not to relinquish you. It's one thing when one of our boys has a friend over for dinner, they are welcome at the table. They can eat, you know, within reason as much as they like. <laughs> it's not the same, though, as when I walk into my son's room and I put my, head on his, my hand on his head before he goes to sleep and I tell him he's mine. That is the movement of God toward each of us. When we come to worship, it's about remembering that we're in God's time. Our time is always a drain. It's always falling away. It's always emptying itself. Our time sucks the life out from us in the most literal way. Our time brings anxiety and despair. But in worship, we remember that God owns the world and God owns us and God owns our future and we submit our heart to God's good rule. We have to be remembered every so often that worship, like our life, actually isn't about you. It's not about me. Well, it is. But it's us carried into God. It's our life and our hopes carried into God. That's why worship and life with God should, at least every now and then, unsettle us. The very best thing God can do for us is to be fiercely God. To refuse to relinquish his power or authority. We need God to be God for us. God to be God with us. God to be God in us. And belonging to this God, this God revealed to us in Jesus, means that God is truly with us. God's hospitality was not merely unlocking the front door and telling us to come in. God's hospitality meant that God came to us and shucked his privileges and the full expressions of his power and humbled himself for the sake of love and came after us. But when Jesus saw Mary crumpled in front of him and received her heart-sick accusation, do you notice that Jesus didn't rebuke her? Jesus didn't offer her a theology lesson. Jesus didn't even really explain to her his delay 
or provide some kind of insightful help so she could see God's grand purposes. The Bible says that Jesus wept. That Jesus saw the heartbreak and saw the death and saw the sorrow. And Jesus was not distant from it. Jesus didn't hold it at bay. Jesus didn't use his theological categories to sort of keep all the chaos away. Jesus carried it into himself and wept with the woman who was weeping. In fact, the way John tells the story, the emotion is so deep here. The scripture says that Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews with her weeping and that he was deeply disturbed. Something was ripping apart in his chest. And then he asked to see where they laid Lazarus and when they asked him to see, when he asked to see, he wept. This disturbance, this unrest came out in tears. And then it says a third time how the agony and the anger and the turmoil that Jesus said, he was again greatly disturbed. Any vision you have of God who remains coolly at a distance from the world is not the image of God revealed to us in Christ. Jesus tells them to roll away the stone. Martha speaks up. You don't want to do this. And I, I really love how John wants to make us sure we hear that this Martha, John says, was the sister of the dead man. <laughs> He's dead. It's as though John wants to make certain that in case Mary's weeping words of her brother's death and all the mourners, and Martha's words, and all the sorrow somehow hadn't sunk in yet. Lazarus is dead. And we might think that we have some fantastic modern view that makes these things different. I can tell you, dead in the first century of Palestine meant the same thing it means for us now. Done. But we know all kinds of death, don't we? I remember just less than a year ago, well, a little over a year ago now, sitting with my mom in her wheelchair by that little water fountain in the courtyard outside of her nursing facility. It had taken about two hours for me to help her get dressed, but she really, really, really wanted to make it outside. And I remember sitting there that day and thinking, it's probably the last time, the last time I see my mom, at least in this way, in this version of the world. I read a story this week, maybe you did too, about the five-year-old Juliana Snow has a terminal disease. She was so tired of being in the hospital because every time something attacks her immune system, she has to rush to the hospital and she told her mom at five years old that she was done because she will die. That she didn't want to go back to the hospital anymore. And her parents are Christians. Her mom's a neurologist. And she said in language, I mean, how do you even do this with a five-year-old? But she wanted to make sure that her five-year-old understood 
And she said, well, you know, if you don't go to the hospital next time you're sick, it means you're going to have less time with mom and dad, and you'll be gone. And, and the five-year-old Juliana said, I know, God will take care of me. Think about all the scars that we inflict on one another, the wounds, how we ravage creation, our world. How many of us have seen death in our marriage or death to a friendship or death to a love, or death to a hope, death of a possibility, death of the life we thought we could have, death to a neighborhood, death to our trust in the goodness of other humans or the fairness of the system, death to our sense of neighborliness because we're all just at each other's throat. Israel waited 400 years for deliverance from Egypt. Hebrews says that there are many who followed Jesus but died without receiving the promise. But the mourners obeyed and they rolled away that stone. And Jesus stepped up to that dark, musty cave that was carrying death's stench. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. Lazarus emerged from this death cave wrapped in grave clothes. Death was still trying to cling to him, but it couldn't because Jesus had spoken. Jesus had made him whole. This is what we mean by restoration. That in God's time, in the world in which God rules, which is this world, contrary as it may be to our experience so often, even though we bring, like Mary, an accusation to God, in this world where God rules, death does not have the final say. God does. And when God speaks, dead people aren't dead anymore. And when God speaks, those tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy. And God is doing this, and he's doing this in us, and promises that he will do this in us and in our world. And God invites us to participate in doing this with God because we are carried into God. At All Souls, we believe that God is active and that God has not abandoned any of us and that God wants the whole world to be whole and well. We wrestle with this. I know that some of us really, really do, but the call is that we will not join the cynicism of our age. God, help us not to be so sophisticated that we no longer believe that Jesus will act on our behalf for those we love and for the world that God loves. God is not merely some metaphor for our self-actualization because now we're so dang smart. We believe that our life and our future requires God. The same God who raised Lazarus from the dead, the God who went to a cross and defeated death and then walked out of that tomb 
And we believe that God loves us. And in the places of our accusation and the long, long stretches where it seems as though God is so far and the cynicism and the doubt and the fear just threatens to absolutely undo us, we believe that in that very place, God weeps with us. And that God will, in the end, in the broad time of God, mend our hearts and our lives and our world. Because all of this is not merely a story about Lazarus. It's certainly not just a story about us in this room. It's a story about God in the entire world. What Jesus did for Lazarus in days to come, the Father would do for Jesus. And then the scripture tells us when all is said and done, this is exactly what the Father and the Son and the Spirit will do for the whole world. Lazarus is not a Bible lesson to look back upon and feel only some warmth. It's the promise of God's action for the world. Did you hear the words of Revelation? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John telling us of what our future is. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, see, the home of God is among mortals. God makes his home with us. And God will dwell with them. And they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. And he will write wipe every tear from their eyes, every tear. Death will be no more, no kind of death. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For those things, those are the first things and in God's time, they will pass away. And the one who was seated on the throne, the one who we declare as Lord, says, see, I am making all things new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And all of God's people across time and history hang our hopes on the faithfulness of God, that he is trustworthy and true.
And when we as a community, in our feeble, <laughs> struggling, uh, warped ways, pray for God's hospitality and restoration in our hearts, in our world, this, this is what we're praying for. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.